Anybody recognize what that is? It is indeed. It is indeed. I don't know how to pronounce that word because it could be Manx, but it's a Triskelion, which is the flag of the Isle of Man. And it's very interesting when you look at the map, you discover that the Isle of Man is almost equidistant between England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. Anybody ever been there? Hands on, let's see how many have been to the Isle of Man. Okay, hands down. Many have been to Spain. <laughs> Not interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's 14 miles wide and it's 32 miles long. It's, it's a bit smaller than Ireland. In Ireland, you're never more than 55 miles from the ocean. So, but uh, nonetheless, that's quite small. And when I was growing up, it was very popular. People used to go uh, to the Isle of Man on holiday. I remember my dad coming home on a Friday night and after the missionary boxes and the offerings had been made, the next thing would be there would be a little place to save for the holiday and mum saved hard so that we could go and I think it was twice we were taken to the Isle of Man on the ferry from Belfast and it was so exciting to get on the, the big ship and get hauled over to the Isle of Man. And in the evening, you know, it wasn't always the, the best weather. You wouldn't go and lie out on the beach on an evening in the Isle of Man, no matter how beautiful it was, you wouldn't do it. So there was a big highlight in there, and there was big business. You had bu buses lined up along the promenade for offering mystery tours. And uh, what happened was you got an old bus like that, or you might have got a more modern one, uh, depending on who the owner of the company was. And there you go, you would walk along the promenade and you would take your choice of bus and you would look at the prices and you would see if one was cheaper than the other and you would opt for the best bargain. So you paid up. You prayed for a front seat because they weren't always the best seats to, and it was crushed and you hoped you wouldn't be sick. Because the Isle of Man, as you know, if you've watched the TT races, there's a lot of twists and turns and some of the bus rides were quite interesting indeed. Uh, but, you know, by the size of it, there wasn't much mystery, really. <laughs> and often you would come to the end and you would say, the mystery, as far as I'm concerned, is what was the sense in going? You know, that was the mystery because there wasn't, there wasn't much to see and it was often quite disappointing. I mean, once you'd been round the island, I, I mean to say. Um, now, I think that's like life. Do you know that? I think it's very like life. You know, the future, for everybody, the future is like a mystery tour. What am I doing here? It's like a mystery tour. And it promises excitement. You know, here we are, 74. I don't know what lies ahead of me, but I'm excited. Something still, God means me still to be here, or he would have taken me away. Who was it? Augustine said we're immortal until our work on earth is done. So life looks, you know, to be exciting and promises excitement. But then into life comes things you never planned for and things you actually hoped would never happen. Unexpected trials, problems, difficulties, they arise, they arrive, and you have to decide, what am I going to do? How am I going to cope? What lies ahead? 
I remember reading something to this effect. Nothing shows more accurately what kind of people we are than the way in which we respond to life's problems, trials and difficulties. I remember reading that and that's a paraphrase. But I think it's quite true. When everything's going swimmingly and everything's going hunky-dory as we would say, it's so easy to be on top of life and in control of your own life to some extent and able to be enjoying life and then things go pear-shaped and suddenly you're fainting and yourself being challenged. What am I going to do? How am I going to live? How am I going to react? So this morning I want us to look at Romans chapter 8. And I want us to learn from Paul's example. Because, as we'll see in a minute, Paul was a man who experienced difficulties. And how did he start? I want to say this is one of the key verses in Paul's writings, as far as I'm concerned. The other passages would be where he lifts up Jesus and focuses on his divinity and his glory. But for a personal response to God, I think this is a key one. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what did Paul do? He rejoiced in God's salvation. Or you could say he rejoiced in God, his saviour. The Apostle Paul believed everyone, including him, was accountable to God. Everyone. All seven billion people in the world are accountable to God. I don't know how God's going to manage to get us all through. When you look at Tesco, how slow it can be sometimes to get through a tell. How's God going to manage to get us all facing him and accounting to him? I don't know. But that's what Paul believed. And we want to contrast Paul's beliefs with the world. Now you can't, you, I can't read all these verses of scripture. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about God being the creator of all things. I'll just read one or two. It says here, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. God is the creator, and all Christians declare that. Now some people have different views as to how creation came. I'm not going to argue with that. As far as I'm concerned, as long as the acknowledgement is given to the fact that God was the one who initiated everything that has happened in creation, that is the key. And God is creator. God can be known through creation. Do you know, I was talking to my sister yesterday and was telling her about a missionary I heard speaking at a conference in Edinburgh. She was just back from Nepal or Thailand. Now this is many years ago. I was in the faith mission. So I was in the faith mission from 1964 to 1968. And she was speaking. She'd come back from Nepal or Thailand. And she talked about how she made a pioneering effort to get up into this hilly area of that country. And she came to a little village. And she went in and she met the people in the village. And she met this old lady who lived alone. 
And she went into the, the house and she was able to communicate with the old lady. And in the middle of the conversation, she used the word Jesus. And this old lady suddenly sat upright and said, That's him! That's him! And of course the missionary was quite mystified. What do you mean that's him? And she said, I have been talking to someone. I didn't know his name. But as soon as you said that's the name Jesus, I knew that's who I've been praying to. And she talked about how she looked around her and she realized that there must be someone who had created all of this and made it all. And she had been praying to this person whose name she didn't know until that missionary said it. And, and the missionary said, I said to her, well, could we pray together? And she said, I said a prayer. And then this old lady started to pray. And she said, this was not the prayer of a baby in Christ. This was the prayer of a mature believer who obviously knew God, even though she didn't know he had been revealed in Jesus, his son. And so she was proof to this missionary that God can be known through creation. But when you look on in Romans 1, he tells us that people suppress the truth. Now that means like to sit on it. You know when you're going on holiday or going to Ecuador and you were packing your case and the last thing you had to do was sit on the case while others made the latches close. You know what that's like. Well that's what people do with the truth. They suppress the truth. I love this little cartoon because it illustrates nothing changes. Light? What light? I don't see any light. I don't believe there is any light out there. You've been deceived. You get the point. He's suppressing the truth in another way. It's just the same. He's put a blindfold on so that he cannot see the light. And there are people like that in our world. But look what God says. God shows his anger against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God as he made it obvious to them. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. You know, when you look at that, and then you think of the words of Louis Pasteur, the man who gave us pasteurized milk, he said this, The more I study nature, the more I am amazed at the Creator. And so here we go. Men suppress the truth. And why do they do it? Because they preferred sin. They didn't want to live in the way that this God wanted them to live. This God was calling them to live lives of holiness. Lives that would shine out his truth in the word, in the world. And they didn't want that. They wanted to be their own people, making their own decisions, doing their own things. And they preferred sin. And so God says, look, I created you. I created the world. And if you turn away from me, I am bound by my nature to act against you in judgment. And so judgment, present and future. And it says here, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now that tells us not only is there a judgment that is going to come at the end, but as people reject God, they experience the judgment of God because sin has its effects on human life. Margaret and I had grandparents and we had one thing in common of our grandparents. Both our grandfathers 
were alcoholics. Both of them. And both of them had a similar experience. My grandfather lost his plumbing business. Margaret's grandfather was lost to the farming industry, which he had in Wexford. And what is alcohol? It's something that brings problems, health problems of every kind. And so it's a kind of judgment upon the overindulgence and the wrong use and misuse of alcohol. And so we could go on. There is a judgment which comes as a result of the way we live. And it's resting on mankind. And then Jesus met with Paul who was part of that world and he changed his life. From being a skeptic he became a servant of God. And in chapter 3 he explains how God's justice was satisfied in the gift of his son Jesus. And how people were then justified. And you've heard this from so many people. The word justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Declare not guilty and that was Paul's experience and so we rejoiced in God's salvation and my dear friends Paul had every confidence in God every confidence and he had every reason to serve him look at that he never forgot this truth because the sinless saviour died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me that's an incredible truth of the bible God can and will forgive us. Not because we have done anything or could do anything to please him of ourselves. But if we look to his son, he will forgive us of all our sins. And in Romans chapter 8 we were reading how that we were adopted into the family of God. Now F.F. Bruce was a great theologian and writer. And he said this, an adopted son was not inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. Now that's, that's the truth of the Bible's teaching. God says I want you to be my child and he adopts us into his family and he treats us exactly as if we were his own. And if we respond to God, he will love us and bless us and use us in everything. Now that was a cause for Paul to rejoice. Look at what I've listed there. He had become the child of the true and loving God. All his sins, not some of them, all his sins were forgiven. His life was filled with the very presence of God. Everywhere he went, God traveled with him. And he then was entrusted by God to share the gospel. My dear friends, God gave Paul and he gives all who trust in him much to rejoice in. Now I'm looking around this morning and I'm thinking, I don't see many people rejoicing. Is, is this so boring? It's, we have so much to rejoice in. Look at that. We are children of the one true and living God. Amen. Amen indeed. I wish you were, if it was in a black church would all be up there. <laughs> all his sins had been forgiven. Every one of them. His life was filled with God's presence. Do you think of that? When you're at the sink. When I'm doing my washing. He's there. I had two washes out before 8 o'clock one morning recently. <laughs> 
mean, I don't think Margaret would have been too approving because I just used the daily wash and I'd been wearing these things for more than a day. But anyway, <laughs> but when you're doing the washing, whatever you're doing, he's there. His presence is there, living within you. And we are entrusted with being his ambassadors. Think of that. You look at an ambassador of our queen. Oh, they strut around as if they ruled the world. You know, I remember a young man in, in CBC. And I said to him one morning, going out, ah, Paul, so I believe you're going off to the civil service. Oh, no, he said. I'm going off to the diplomatic service. And, and like, it was as if I'd committed the unforgivable sin, you know, because it wasn't the civil service, it was the diplomatic service. Listen, we are the ambassadors of God. What a privilege. And all that is ours. And so Paul rejoiced in God. But he was very realistic. And he knew that life wouldn't be trouble-free. He realized very clearly that Christians, regardless of what age, regardless of what country, every Christian would suffer, just like everybody else in the world. I think one of the first verses that really helped me in my Christian life, apart from the ones that came to me, I was given to me at conversion, was Psalm 34. The good person does not escape all troubles. He or she has them too. And then you have the blessed conjunction. But, but the Lord helps him in each and every one. Those words have helped me through my 74 years. They've helped me. Because at times when I think things go wrong. Look, the one advantage I have over all the others in the world is this, I have God on my side and that's not being arrogant that's stating, standing on the teaching of the word of God I have the same problems and trials as everybody else but the Lord helps the children of God now Paul was converted about, or about 34 AD, these dates are approximate, died in 56 and so over 22 years he had a life of joy and you read for example Philippians, the book of rejoicing, he, his life had so much joy but his life also had suffering over 22 years and it's interesting how did he manage to adopt such a positive attitude, well at his very conversion Ananias, who was to become his initial mentor, was told to go and tell him that God was going to use him to spread the gospel, but he would suffer in the process. So he had been told to expect suffering by Jesus because Ananias would have passed that on. And then in Romans 8, 17 and 18, he made it clear he was willing to suffer for Jesus. And think of it, physically. Do you remember how he spoke in 2 Corinthians about a thorn in the flesh? The Living Bible, when it came out initially a good few years ago, translated that as a painful physical ailment. And there's lots of speculation as to what that may be. And when he's writing to the church at Galatians, he talks about how upset they were when he arrived with his illness. So he suffered physically. He suffered persecution. 
He speaks about that. All the experiences he had. He was beaten. He was thrown in the stocks. He was mocked. He was stoned. And he talks to the Galatians about, don't question my apostleship. I bear the marks of an apostle on my body. The marks of his persecution. He suffered pastorally. Concerned for not just a church. I think it's right to say that there are times in every pastor's life when he suffers mentally. And it takes an effect even physically. And emotionally. And spiritually. By things that happen within the church. People act within the Christian church in ways in which they would never act in secular employment. They will say things within meetings that they would never dare say within a meeting in their place of employment. But they take advantage of the freedom that there is in the Christian church. And sadly, many pastors suffer. And Paul, he didn't just have one church to get involved in. He had to care for loads of them. Imagine his suffering. I love the comment. Do you ever listen? Some of you will be uh, busy, busy working. I'm sitting at my desk every day at 12. And at two minutes past 12, there's a little program comes on for about 12 minutes. It's just about... What happened on this day during the First World War? I've forgotten what it's called, but it's only about 12 minutes on the radio. And it's scenes from the First World War. And this young man said about World War II, I wouldn't mind going to war and being a hero if I knew I wouldn't get hurt. Interesting, isn't it? As a Christian, Paul's mindset was very different. Very different. God's son suffered for him. So I need to be prepared to suffer for Christ. So how did he cope with all the pressure? He resolved to think positively about God and faith. Now notice that. He resolved. You know when we talk about New Year's resolutions... That's when we resolve we're going to lose weight. Right? I've been trying this. And my human resolution, even my best one, hasn't worked because uh, there's too many meals available in Tesco and Marks and Spencers. And, and uh, I tried to do turnip and potatoes and bacon the other night. And what a nightmare it was. It took me, I don't know, it must have taken me at least an hour to prepare it. Half an hour to peel the turnip. It was a nightmare. So you make a resolution, I'm going to lose weight. And it never works. You buy these meals with all the calories. Now Paul resolved that he was going to think positively about God and faith. Now how do you do that? It's by focusing our minds and our thoughts on God. Look at what Paul writes in this chapter. Those dominated by sinful nature think about sinful things. Those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. And that can also show itself in private doubt or public denial. Letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And God's peace is stronger than human pain. 
Now my friends, trusting God enables Christians to overcome the pressures and trials of life. And that's a key thing. And Paul tells us, it's not easy. It's not easy. Do you remember how he would have preferred not to suffer? He said in 2 Corinthians 12, three times I pleaded for this painful physical illness to be removed. He had poured his heart out to God. Take away this illness. I can't cope. And when the quest was rejected, he accepted God's remedy. My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So what's this boasting bit? It's just a matter when people come to him and say, Paul, Paul, look at you, look at you, look at what you've just come through and yet look at how you're standing up and you're still wanting to press ahead with God. How do you do it? And so he would say, well, the answer's simple. God lives within me and he gives me the strength and he would boast about his faith in Christ. And how that was the key to being an overcomer. My dear friends, when we are struggling, and if you so far have got through life without any struggles, let me say this morning that there are going to be experiences and there are going to be times when all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, will struggle with problems in life. When we're struggling, we need to resolve to think positively about God and faith. One of the expressions that became common in our home was new norm. New norm. And instead of talking about suffering, Margaret would talk about, this is the new norm. Why would she talk like that? Because she loved her God. And she didn't she couldn't be disloyal to him. And when trials came, she couldn't blame him. She lived in a world where sin and sickness is part and parcel of life. And what do you do? Do you throw away your faith because you're experiencing the same as everybody else in the world? No. You stand firm. And you trust him. Even in the midst of the trials. He relied on the Holy Spirit. There are times when Paul struggled even to talk to God and tell God how he felt. Lost for words. And God knew what he was going through. And he provided for it. Look at what he says. In the same way, God's Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. So he would get on his knees and he would try to communicate with God and he couldn't. He was so overwhelmed. And then the Holy Spirit took over. 
you know, it's like my experience of a foreign language. I think I told you this before. If I have, forgive me. But we, we went to France. And because I didn't speak French, I would never talk to anybody. I wouldn't make an attempt. But the very last night, we were going to a restaurant, and I said to Margaret uh, during the meal, this has been so good. These people have been so gracious. I'm going to say thank you as I leave in French. And so I tried it in France. And uh, here was what I said to the people. My, this was my French for thank you for such a good evening. <laughs> And Margaret looked at me and bundled me out. Get out, she said. Out, out. <laughs> I was such an embarrassment. I couldn't, I couldn't communicate in French. You know, there are times when you cannot communicate with God. You're lost for words. You're overwhelmed by the problems. God says, just get into my presence and the Holy Spirit will take your groanings. And he will tell me. So I'm delighted when someone inter interprets for me overseas or on Peter Head. Um, so how much more am I delighted when God by his spirit intercedes? Let the Holy Spirit resolve the problem for us. I'm nearly finished. He rested in the knowledge God was in the control. I think this is so important. He couldn't make sense out of life. I can't make sense out of life. I really can't. But he determined to keep trusting God. Why? He said, we know in all things God works for good of all who love him. Why was he thinking? In Romans 1 he had been focusing on creation. What was creation? Creation was God bringing order out of chaos. And he would do the same for him. Suffering could or would make him more like Jesus. I like these little expressions. Are you laying a feather bed for me? That shall not be. My Lord was stretched on a tree for me. That I think would have summarized Paul's thinking. Jesus went through all that for me. How can I draw the line at something that's happening to me? And you know, when you look at Christ, he's, or Paul, he was inspired. Do you remember he said, I've run the race. I've finished the course. I've done everything God asked of me. I've been loyal. I've been faithful. Now I'm going home for my crown. I couldn't forget the words of C.T. Studs. The great missionary, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Do we get it? The Lord Jesus Christ died for us. He left heaven for us, laid down his life, suffered tremendously, spiritually, more than anything else, as God watched him being made sin for us. And C.T. Studd said, when I think of that, how can I think about the discomforts that I'm experiencing in China and in Africa? I can't. I have to put all those thoughts out of my head because the love of Christ is greater. So he rejoiced in God's salvation. 
He realized that we would suffer like everyone else. He resolved that nothing was going to shake his faith. He would think positively about God and faith. He relied on the Holy Spirit and his relationship with God inspired him daily. I love the way he finishes this chapter. I am convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even when Paul was suffering, he knew that God had not deserted him. That's what helped him. That's what carried him through. In the hardest moments, God's love was filling his life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we live by faith, not by sight, nor feelings. If we live by feelings, we could easily say, God, what are you doing? Why are you messing me about? Why are you allowing this? I just feel so rotten today. God says, uh-uh. Walk by faith. In the midst of your rottenness, I'm still loving you. And I'm still there for you. And I'm never, ever, ever going to leave you. And he kept looking forward to meeting Jesus. And, you know, when he, he knew that when he would meet Jesus, and Jesus would rise to welcome him, and he would hold out his hands to welcome him home, and he would see the marks of the nails. And suddenly all the suffering of whatever nature would peel into insignificance compared to what he had done for us. And the writer of this hymn said, Not now, but in the coming years, it may be in the better land, we'll read the meaning of our tears, and then someday we'll understand. You're not going to understand here. But we have to keep trusting. Until that day comes. And so my prayer is that God would enable us to continue to trust in Jesus. Whatever happens in life. Because he will always be an ever-present help in trouble. In 1966, there was a terrible disaster at Aberfan. There was a primary school. There was a slag heap. There had been so much rain and the slag heap moved, just as what happened in Sierra Leone this past week. And in that primary school, the pupils, 116 children and 28 adults died. It was the 50th anniversary last year of that terrible event. And a minister who was the son or son-in-law of a minister who lost his own child in that disaster, but who kept going around and ministering to others, knowing his own child was lying there among the dead. And this, that minister's son-in-law was asked to prepare a hymn for the, the anniversary of the disaster. I think it's got a much wider meaning than just for that disaster. And I want us to sing it, but that's the background. And it says, God who knows our darkest moments meets us in our brokenness. 
walks beside us as a whisper, holds our pain in his caress. And it goes on to sing and to lead us realistically into what it means to prove God in our lives. You'll know the tune. The tune is, here is love fast as the ocean. It happened in Wales. This is a lovely Welsh tune and we sing it to the praise of God. Thank you.